Well, that was really a, the perfect hymn to enter into our message today because we're going to tell you who this child is. And we're looking at Colossians chapter 1. Uh, take your Bibles and open up to Colossians chapter 1, verse 3 through 18. We're not going to do the, the depth of exposition that I normally would do because as you notice from this text, this is uh, one of those that I could spend months on. And uh, it's really profound and gives us great insight into our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the reason for the season. Colossians chapter 1, verse 3 through 18, I'm going to read the text, and then we'll look at it together. It says, We give thanks to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints. Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you have heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you, as it is also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day you heard it and knew of the grace of God in truth. As you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who was a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, on your behalf rather, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you, may, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and longsuffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of his son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. You probably can see why it would take me a long time to go through this text. I mean, after all, it is one of those run-on sentences that the Apostle Paul has. If you noticed, even in the English text, it takes a long time to get to a period. And Paul was one of those who had the ability to go on and on and on on a particular topic and not to be not profound, but to be very deep in his statements that he's given here. And specifically, we're going to zero in on verse 15 and following when we talk about the Christ himself, who is the image of the invisible God. But just to begin with, we're going to talk about the first few verses to kind of give some context to it and some reason for what Paul says in chapter 1, verse 15. Now, every year when December comes around and families begin to prepare for the celebration of Christmas, I know that it is my personal responsibility as your pastor to preach a message dealing with the birth of Christ. It probably, for me, is one of the most difficult sermons to preach. Not because I would prepare any different or that I would find it more difficult to study the scripture in any way, 
but I find it difficult because of the familiarity of it. That most of you here, I'm sure, are familiar with the birth of Christ. In fact, what we will read tonight will not be news to most of you. You have heard the story, the narrative of the birth of Christ. And the challenge comes with being able to preach something that you will listen to and not fall asleep while I'm going through it. And it is indeed something that I think all of us should be reminded of because as we come to the birth of Christ, we're not talking about an insignificant event. We are talking about a historical event that changed all of history. In fact, it is the hub of history. We even have our calendars determined by the birth of Christ. At least it used to be. It was B.C. and A.D., right? They've since tried to do away with that because you want to get rid of the most important event in the history of the world, and that is the birth of Jesus Christ. But all of us are familiar with the babe in the manger. We're familiar with Mary and Joseph and their betrothal before the birth of Christ, and we are also familiar with the shepherds and the fields and the celestial events that occurred in the sky and the wise men that came later to offer gifts to the Son of God. And this story is familiar to Christians and non-Christians alike. It is most familiar, of course, this story, the advent of Christ, the first advent. It is the most familiar story to all of the world, more than the resurrection of Christ, more than the resurrection of Christ. In fact, resurrection, or what some term Easter, I like to call Resurrection Sunday, is often obscured by rabbits who lay colored eggs in strange places. But the birth of Christ, even in our pagan world, understands that this was a significant event historically of the birth of Jesus. They may not know who Jesus really is, or they may not understand the real significance of the birth of Christ, but they're familiar with it. I mean, think of it like this. Whenever you drive through many of the neighborhoods where we live, we often see silhouettes of Mary and Joseph and the baby in the, in the, the uh, properties that are around us. In fact, in some cases, you'll see this on the property of business owners or in some rare cases now, in some government buildings' properties. Christmas cards even circulate with the theme of the birth of Christ. Familiar Christmas songs are played on the uh, secular radio, and I'm talking more particularly about the hymns that we are familiar with that talk about the birth of Christ. One of the most popular phrases that is used in, our, in this time of the year is Jesus is the reason for the season. I read this past week that that was going to be a particular term that could not be said or used out in one of the liberal states of our country, which you probably could guess where. And although that is true that Jesus is the reason for the season, it is not the whole story by no means. In fact, it would be the beginning of the story, would it not? The beginning of it. The world around us misses the significance of the birth of Jesus Christ. He is not just the babe in the manger. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords who will rule and reign on this earth. It is not just the miraculous sign that people often talk to. It is not just the amazing celestial event of the star 
that led the shepherds to Bethlehem. It's not just the gifts that were given by the wise men. It's much more than this. This is the ancient fulfillment of prophecies from the old prophets, which talk about the mysterious incarnation, which is Emmanuel, which is God with us, with God with us. The reason for the season really could be summed up this way. It is redemption. It is salvation. It is deliverance from darkness, as we will see in just a few moments. This is the coming of the Savior to save us from our sin and the certain consequences of it. What the world recognizes as a babe in a manger with Mary and Joseph attending most often misses what the Bible teaches regarding this babe. Things like this babe came to save man who is hopelessly fallen in his sin and has no hope, absolutely no hope of correcting his path. That this babe came as a savior to save man who is a violator of the laws of God and is in rebellion against the sovereign one. This man who is not good and is inherently evil and repeatedly runs from God. Jesus as a babe came to be the savior of men who are in darkness and are blind to their reality. And yet they love their darkness. Come to save these same men who will not seek God nor do they desire to. These same men who will be punished for every single sin that they have done and thought in body and mind. The same men who are running toward hell while at the same time believing that they're on their way to heaven. This babe in a manger means that man can't save himself. Listen, Jesus did not come to help you be saved. He came to save you. You are, as we've often talked about, not someone who's sick in sin. You are dead in your sin. And you need resurrection, not resuscitation. You need someone to reach down to the depths where you have died for some time and are now in a state of decay in your sin. And you need Jesus Christ to reach his only eternal arm down and grab you and pull you out. Jesus didn't come to help you be saved. He came to save you. To save you. And that baby in the manger means a lot. Oh, there's a great deal we could talk about regarding that. Like it tells us that God desires to save men. That he would send his son. It tells us also that God loves sinners. It tells us that God desires to deliver men from darkness. And it tells us that God can and will save sinners. It also tells us that he alone can save and no one else. Had he had any opportunity from any man, he could have sent a man. Or if an angel could have done it, it could have been an angel that he sent. But it wasn't any of those. It had to be the Son of God. It had to be God in flesh that could come and save us. And he was willing to do so, even to the point, as Philippians 2 says, even the death of the cross. He was willing to sacrifice himself. That's what the baby in the manger means. It's much more than what the world thinks. In fact, I think the world would be very comfortable leaving the baby in the manger. The problem is, is when he grows up. And like I told you before, it's not so much even him growing up and doing miracles. They love that. It's when he starts talking. And he starts telling them the truth. The Bible says that Jesus Christ came 
in grace, unmerited favor, that is that we don't deserve it, right? He came in grace and, here's the other word, truth. He came speaking the truth, and the truth didn't settle with a lot of them. And it still doesn't settle today. Everybody's very content with keeping the baby there. They just don't want him to grow up and be king. I've read this past week, uh, and actually have seen it a couple of times. I guess it's going around. They're saying now that the manger is the first king-sized bed. I don't know if that's exactly true. I understand what they mean. I mean, that babe in the manger was not just any ordinary baby. He was not just a man. He was God in the flesh. And so as we come to our text, what we're being reminded of is really the reason for the season. And the depth of that is given to us really in the person of Christ. But before he even gets into the person of Christ, he talks about that tremendous deliverance that we have in salvation. But before he gets to that, he talks about how you and I are to be strengthened in the will and the knowledge of God, which is the desire of the Apostle Paul. So it's a very practical passage. A very practical passage to all of us. So let's just begin and work our way through it this morning. We're going to consider, first of all, the prayer. And I'm going to start actually in verse 9. The prayer, verse 9. It says in that text, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. Now that was Paul's common practice. He prayed often for the churches that he was involved in, that he discipled in, that he, in fact, in some cases pastored. It was no different with the church at Colossae. He prayed for them. And it even says that we have the reason why that he is praying. In verse 4, if you back up now, since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and of your love for all the saints, now verse 6 and that it is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day we heard and knew of the grace of God and truth. What exactly does he pray for? Again, looking at the text in verse 9, it says that he would ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering with joy. Now, frankly, folks, I don't know of too many people who pray like that. But that's the central theme of the Apostle Paul. He really zeroes in on the growth of these believers at Colossae, and he's praying, as you'll note in the text, that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will, the knowledge of God's will. This is a reoccurring theme, by the way, in the New Testament of the Apostle Paul. He desires that you and I be filled with the knowledge of his will. Let's look at the particulars of it. When you say the word filled, what does it mean by filled? Well, that's the Greek word plerao. It means to be literally controlled by, not just filled up with information. And listen, it's very easy to get a lot of information, right? Today especially. With the advent of internet and so much available uh, scripture to us and commentaries and sermons, you can get filled up with information. No doubt about that at all. But that's not the way the word plerao is being used here. In fact, that word is used of the disciples having their hearts filled with sorrow in John 16, 6. 
It's used of the crowd that is filled with fear whenever Jesus healed the paralytic in Luke 5.26. It's used of the scribes and the Pharisees who are filled with rage in Luke 6.11. It's used of the disciples who are filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts 4.31. And it's even used of Stephen in Acts 6.5 of him being filled with the Spirit and filled and full of faith. And so the idea behind the text is not just to be full of something, but to be controlled by something. The disciples were controlled by their sorrow. The crowd was controlled by their fear. The scribes and Pharisees were controlled by their rage. And also in Acts 4.31, the disciples were controlled by the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be filled here. Not just to have the knowledge, not just to know the ins and outs and ups and downs and have your theology right and your, your eschatology right or your soteriology right or ecclesiology or all the other ologies. That's not the point. Those are essential, but you need to be controlled by what you know. Controlled. What does he mean by that? The word knowledge in the verse, epignosis, two words, gnostis or gnosis. It means basic knowledge or to know something. You put the preposition on front of it. It intensifies it, epignosis. It meant a deep and thorough knowledge of something. Well, what are we to have a deep and thorough knowledge of? He says it in the text, right? The will of God. You're to have a deep and thorough knowledge of the will of God. Well, how do you know the will of God? Well, it kind of goes back to how you get the knowledge. It goes back to the word of God. If you're going to know the will of God, you have to know the word of God. And then the more you know the word of God, the more the word of God controls you. That's the same thing, by the way, over in Ephesians 5.18, where it says, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. The parallel passage is Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Those are the same thing. We're not talking about something mystical. We're not talking about you getting alone in your prayer closet and praying till God zaps you. We're simply talking about a habit of filling your mind and your heart with the word of God so much so that you begin to discern the will of God in your life for everything and it controls you. It controls your understanding of the world around you. It controls your understanding of your own sin. It controls your understanding of how you should respond in a godly manner. And like MacArthur said on one occasion, which I truly agree with, that whenever you are truly controlled by and filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with his will, your involuntary actions will be godly. And that means simply this, you won't have time to think about it, things to prepare for it, but whenever you respond or think or act, it will be a godly response because you have the will of God permeating your heart and your mind through his word. But he also tells us that that knowledge will lead to, notice the text, it will need to lead to wisdom and understanding. Wisdom and understanding. The word wisdom is Sophia. It simply means the ability to act wisely or to apply what you know. It's one thing to know someone who knows some facts. It's a different thing when someone has wisdom. Like you can have someone who, uh, here, here's the difference between knowledge and wisdom, all right? Knowledge is I know that a certain voltage of electricity can shut your heart down and kill you, right? That's knowledge. Wisdom is knowing not to stick your fingers in the light socket, right? That's wisdom. 
That's basically, isn't it? That's basic. That, that all of us can relate to, we understand. And he's saying that this knowledge is not just knowing the facts, but having the ability to discern through those facts to be able to apply those things that you know. And understanding just kind of carries it a little further. Synesis is the Greek word. It means to perceive or truly understand. And this comes with discipline and time. It doesn't occur overnight. It comes with a repeated availability to spend time in the word, understanding it, memorizing it, dedicating yourself to it, and knowing and discerning the will of God. Then comes the wisdom, the ability to practice. Even the Pharisees in Jesus' day understood the difference between those two. They knew that knowledge was one thing, but wisdom was the ability to apply those things. You read the Old Testament, often what we refer to as the wisdom literature, like Proverbs, is a long list of things you do and don't do in a practical way, right? One author said this, Believing and submissive Bible study leads to the knowledge of God's will. A mind saturated with such knowledge will also be able to comprehend general principles of godly behavior. With that wisdom will come understanding of how to apply those principles into the situations of life. That progression will inevitably result in godly character and godly practice. Well, that's not the end of it all. It would be one thing if that's all that God had intended for us or all that Paul was praying for, but all of that had a purpose. If you look at verse 10, there are actually a number of reasons why he prayed for this, or really you could even say that these are the results of you having wisdom and understanding and knowledge of his will. Verse 10, look at it. You start with the word that there. Or the result of that would be that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him and being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. There's the beginning of it, that you would walk worthy. Now, that's an important thing to remind ourselves of, folks. When we talk about the Lord Jesus being born as a babe in a manger and you are becoming one of his followers, right, then you and I are to walk worthy of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Would it change your conduct if you were made an ambassador of one of the highest ranking officials in the United States? Would it change your conduct if you were given a great status to be one who represents a king or a lord? We would all say yes, and so it is the case with our Lord. You represent the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the creator of all things, and we are to walk worthy of it with our daily conduct. That's what he's calling for us to do. And that's the first thing that should result in this knowledge and wisdom and understanding that you walk worthy in your daily conduct. Your mind controlled by knowledge and wisdom produces worthy conduct. Worthy conduct. This is found throughout scripture, in fact, in a number of pace, uh, places like 1 Thessalonians 2.12. Walk in a manner worthy of, the God, worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Ephesians 4, 4, 4 uh, verse 1 says that we are to walk worthy of the calling which we, with which we've been called. In Philippians 1, 27, we are to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, if you're associating with the king of kings and the gospel, then act like it. That's what he's saying. Act like it. Then he even tells us the second product of this knowledge and wisdom is being fruitful in every good work. He's talking about being fruitful, not being a fruit, not being weird, not being strange, 
but just being one who produces fruit. Now, there's a lot of examples of that in the New Testament. We don't have time to cover them this morning. But know that it is the will of God that you produce fruit as a believer. Even in the very, very basic fundamental teaching of salvation, it tells us that we are saved by grace for the purpose that we may do good, what? Works. That's the same thing as fruit. Praise of your lips is a fruit. People coming to Christ through your evangelistic effort is a fruit. Discipleship and people learning the word of God is a fruit. And the Bible says that God desires that we are fruitful in every good work. We give ourselves over to this. John 15, 8 says that you and I are glorified, rather the Father is glorified by you bearing much fruit. You want to glorify God? Then you bear much fruit. In Romans 7, 4, it talks about that we might bear fruit unto God. So there's a second result of this knowledge and wisdom and understanding. Not only walking worthy, but also bearing fruit, but also another one, which should be understood, increasing in the knowledge of God. Look at verse 10 again. You don't stop. And by the way, you and I will never plumb the depths of the word of God. We'll never finally get to the end of it and say, you know what? I finally have all of this nailed down. I've been at this now for 35 years, and I have yet to fully understand the full depths of the word of God. In fact, the longer I spend time in it, the more I find out I don't know. And that's the way it is. You cannot exhaust it. This book is authored by an infinite God with infinite wisdom, with infinite understanding, with infinite knowledge. And we get a little small piece of that in these 66 books. And none of us can exhaust it all. Yet at the same time, Paul says he prays that you would be filled with the knowledge of God's will for the purpose that you would increase in the knowledge of God. You know God more. That's theology proper, right? That you would know God, know his character, know who he is. Epignosis is used again. Have a deep understanding of God. It even talks about how you and I as newborn babes should grow in the milk and of the word of God. That we should continually have the spirit of God taking the words of God and applying, to, applying them to our lives. And then we have one more thing as given to us in this text. Number four. And that is that we would be strengthened, this is verse 11 now, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. Now Paul gets very practical here, and he basically tells us that all of this knowledge of the will of God and wisdom and understanding is that you may walk worthy of the gospel, walking worthy of him, that you of course would also be those that are fruitful in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, and strengthened with all might, or all power, according to his power, which would come by the word of God and the spirit of God. Here it is, for all patience and long-suffering with joy. Two words he uses here. We spent a lot of time on this in the book of James. The first word translated in my Bible, patience, is from Hupomone, it may be translated steadfastness in your text. It basically means patience with circumstances or being steadfast in difficult times. That would be the idea of it. No matter what's going on around you in the world you live in, you're patient, steadfast, firm, solid, grounded in that. The second word is used, which is better translated in the New King James, long-suffering. That really gives you the better idea of what the word macrothemia means. It's translated patience in some of the translations. 
But the word macrothemia means to be patient with people. Patient with those people around you that cause you offense, that cause you trouble, that insult you, accuse you, that are persecuting you. And these Christians had the same problem that all the New Testament churches had at that time, the increasing hostility for the gospel. And they were to do all of this work to, to, to know the will of God, to have understanding and wisdom, and to be fruitful in every good work, to increase in the knowledge of God, theology proper that is, so that you could be patient with your circumstances and be patient with the people who may in fact call some of your circumstances. Right? That's very practical, isn't it? That moves us to the second point. That's just his prayer. That's just his prayer. He moves to thanksgiving, secondly. From prayer to praise, verse 12, he says he gives thanks to the Father. Now, this is where he begins to go highly theological now. We're going to delve deep into the great salvation that we have in Christ. And the point is, is this. All that he has called on us to do in verse 9 and following happens because of verse 12 and following. Or to say it like this. You and I could never do what God's called us to do in the earlier verses without what has happened in verse 12 and following. Look at it with me. Verse 12, Paul says that he gives thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. Now, I'll be straight with you. I could preach on this verse alone for days. This opens up the entirety of the New Testament and the Old Testament that you have given to us here a real simplified understanding of what it is to be truly converted and saved and made a follower of Christ. But notice what he says. He starts off by telling us that we are to give thanks to the Father. The Father is the initiator of this all. If you were to really kind of get theologically precise and ask who is it that devised the plan of salvation, if we go back to what it says in John 6, we would have to agree that the Father did that. All that the Father gives me will come to me, Jesus says, and the ones that come to me I will by no means cast out, right? All that God had given to the Son, he will raise up in the last day. We see that throughout Scripture. Now, we could argue also that Jesus Christ was involved in it, that the Holy Spirit was involved in it, but there are clear indications in Scripture that the Father seems to be the one who devises the plan and then sends the Son... And then the Son ascends back to heaven and then sends the Holy Spirit, right? The promise of the Father in John 16. But notice he says here, giving thanks to the Father, not the judge. He's not your judge anymore. He's not the one who's going to condemn you to death and hell anymore. He is your Father. That's Galatians, right? We cry out to him, Abba, which is like saying Papa or Daddy. It's a very intimate term. The God who's the sovereign one of the universe, who brought everything into existence, who rules the world and all that there is, is now our Father, our Papa, our Daddy. We give thanks to the Father. Why? Why would Paul want to mention this? Why, we, why would he want to praise the Father? Well, it says it in verse 12. He has qualified us. I love that. He's qualified us to share, it says, in the inheritance. We're adopted sons 
But to become an adopted son, you have to be qualified. You have to be qualified. Now, you and I all know this. In, in our world, if you want to be a doctor, right, you have to meet certain qualifications. If you want to be a police officer, you have to meet certain qualifications and certain standards. And it should be that if you want to be a pastor, you have to meet certain qualifications and standards. And whenever it comes to being a partaker of the inheritance, guess what? No different. You have to be qualified. You have to be qualified to actually have that inheritance. Now, before you get a little uncomfortable with that, let me remind you of this. You're not the one who qualifies yourself. You can't do it. It's impossible for you to do it. In fact, before you are saved, you don't want to do it. You don't want anything to do with it at all. Notice the text again, verse 12. Very specifically, it says, we give thanks to the Father who, the Father who has qualified us. It's an aorist active verb. It means that God is the one doing this. God qualifies us. The Greek word translated here, qualified, hekanao, is a word that simply means to make sufficient or to empower or to authorize, or here it is, to make fit, to make fit. We're not able to qualify ourselves based upon our own efforts or our own works or our own righteousness because, frankly, we don't have any. All of our good works are filthy rags in his sight. All of our works are evil in his sight. The Bible says there's none good, no, not one. There's none righteous, no, not one. All of us are unqualified. But one of the things about salvation and grace of God and the mercy of God is this, is that God, God takes the unqualified and qualifies them. He takes the ones who are unworthy and makes them worthy. Not through us, not through anything we have or can or would do, but through the righteousness of Christ that is placed on us. We are the ones that are the unqualified in need of being qualified. Ephesians 2, you remember that? In verse 1, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and the power of the air that now is working, continually working in the sons of disobedience. Among them also we formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of our flesh and our mind, and we were by nature children deserving of wrath. That's what we qualified for. You go down the whole list of what we had, and if you were to look at our qualifications, we wouldn't qualify for anything in heaven, but we would have all the perfect qualifications for hell. Every one of them. Ephesians 2 says, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. This is Ephesians 2.12. You were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. That's why Romans 11 says you have to be grafted in. You were excluded, unqualified, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Ephesians 4.17 says, Paul says, Therefore I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the emptiness or futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, they having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity and greediness. That's where we were before the Father qualified us. One author said, before our salvation, we were dominated by the evil world system. 
its wicked ruler Satan, and our own fallen sinful human natures. We were Christless, stateless, covenantless, hopeless, and godless. Our minds were given to futility. Our understandings were darkened. We were cut off from the life of God, ignorant, hard-hearted, callous, immoral, impure, and greedy. The only thing we were qualified to receive from God was his wrath. We were never qualified to receive his mercy or his grace. And that enhanced gives us the definition of what grace and mercy is, right? It's not deserved. And what are we qualified for? Look at the text again. We're qualified for an inheritance. An inheritance. The Greek word literally means for the portion of the lot. It's a, what they call a partitive genitive, which means that you receive your own allotment of the inheritance. Now, this is really interesting when you think about it because the Bible tells us that we have a number of things that are our inheritance. The first and most obvious is eternal life. The Bible tells us in Matthew 19:29, listen to these words, everyone who has left houses and brothers and sisters or father and mother and children for my name's sake shall receive many times as much and shall inherit eternal life. So part of our inheritance is eternal life. And that eternal life doesn't start whenever you die. That eternal life starts the moment you are converted and saved. Secondly, our inheritance is, guess, guess what? The earth. That's right. You get this planet. The Bible says that those who are his will inherit the earth. Blessed are the, you know the phrase in Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the He's not talking about Mars. He's talking about this planet that God will one day regenerate. He's going to remake it. And it's going to be a place like the Garden of Eden, un unfallen, unstained by evil. And when Jesus comes back, he's ruling on this planet. He's not going somewhere else. He's coming here and you will inherit this place. Listen, the Mormons don't have anything on us. They think they get their own planet somewhere, but they have to be pregnant for the rest of eternity to populate their own planet. As believers, we get this place with Christ, and according to the text of Scripture, you and I rule and reign with him. It's going to be a beautiful time. We get this place. Listen, you're not going to be somewhere in eternity floating around on a cloud playing a harp. Nothing wrong with harps. Or guitars or anything as far as that is concerned. But the point is you're going to be here in this place renewed, regenerated, remade. But also we get more than that. We get not only the eternal life, we get the earth, we get the promises of God. The promises of God, which are many promises. I don't have the time to read all of them to you. Just read the scripture. All the promises that are given to Israel are given to us. All of the promises of the covenant, all the promises of eternal life, all the promises of blessings. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 12 says that we are those who are imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The promises. We get all of that from God and we're called in this text, those who are saints of the light, don't have time to spend a great deal on that. We are the hagias. We are the holy ones in the light, not in darkness anymore. We're not part of those, according to 1 Corinthians 6, 9, that 
are the unrighteous that will not inherit the kingdom of God. We are part of those who will inherit the kingdom of God. We are not those that are, according to Ephesians 5, 5, the covetous man or the idolater or the immoral, but we are those who will inherit the kingdom of God in Christ our God. We are saints, as indicated in this text, in the light. And light represents two things in Scripture, truth as opposed to error, which is darkness, and also morally it represents holiness as opposed to unholiness or ungodliness. And we are in both. We are in Truth and holiness as the hagias of God, as the saints of God, the saints of God. Now, how do we get there? Does God just come down and just zap us and make us qualified and everything's great? He just converts us and that's over and it's done and it's finished and it's that simple? It's kind of like what much of the world believes about the way people are saved, right? They think that God is such a loving God and a caring God and a gracious God and a merciful God that all he does is just forgive everybody. And everybody goes to heaven. Well, that's not exactly the way the Bible teaches it at all. You and I could not be forgiven if the justice of God had not been satisfied. The holiness of God is just as important as his love and his mercy and his grace. You and I cannot be made qualified unless God's law is satisfied. And you and I are violators of the law from the very beginning to the end. From the very start, whenever we're crying as a newborn babe, we're already starting off. Not even to deal with the original sin that we are in Adam, born already condemned. So how do we get there? How do we get qualified? Well, we move from the prayer to the praise to the power. Now we're getting into the message itself. Verse 13. Verse 13. How is it that he's qualified us? He has, verse 13, delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed or transformed or transferred us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about being uh, delivered, delivered from the wrath of God, delivered from perishing, right? This word delivered here, ru'amai, means to be drawn to yourself or to be rescued. And I love that term because that's the way it really is in Scripture. We're literally running as far away from God as we can, desperately desires to get away from Him and His law, having no desire to be part of His kingdom, on our way to plunge straight into hell, and desiring to be there, by the way, to head that direction, and yet He rescues us. He delivers us. This is like uh, what happens in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. This rescue is not something that happens gradually. It's not him helping us to become morally better over time. It's not some, as we'll see in just a couple of days now, the New Year's resolutions where you say you're going to eat better, do better, exercise more, stop doing this, start doing this. And maybe you'll do it, maybe you won't. This rescue is not something that's gradual. It's immediate. And it's permanent. You remember what it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17? Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. This is not a slow, progressive move of God. This is a transformative miracle. A moment in time where you are, as the Apostle Paul, on your way to Damascus to kill Christians, totally convinced that you're part of the right religion, right? 
And then Jesus interrupts your life, changes you, dramatically changes you, and turns you around and sends you in a different direction. That's what's going on here in this text when he talks about you are delivered, who am I, to be drawn to yourself or rescued. And notice what it says, that you are delivered from the domain of darkness. Exousius is the word domain. It means jurisdiction or authority. The actual word has the idea of having the state of control over. You were at one time, as Ephesians 2 says, under the control of darkness. What's so strange about that is we all recognize, and I'm sure hopefully many of you remember, that whenever you were there, you did not realize just how under control of darkness you were. You were properly and desirously of darkness. You wanted it, and you had no idea just how dark it really was until the light was shown on you, and you were rescued from the, the power or the jurisdiction of darkness, pulled out, rescued from, taken away from. And then in verse 13 he says, and conveyed unto the kingdom of his love, or transferred. Methistomy is the Greek word. It means to remove or to change. It's used in Acts 13, 22 to speak of God removing Saul from being king. In other words, you're at one time in one position, in one place, and now you're transferred or conveyed over to a whole nother place. Here in this text is to the kingdom of the son of his love. By the way, this is the only time in the New Testament you find this reference to, to Christ as the son of his love. This is a direct reference to the intimacy between the father and the son. That the son was not just a creature, as we'll see in just a few moments, but that he was the son, the eternal son of the father, uniquely loved by the father. And we are transferred over to that kingdom, the kingdom of his son, not just any son, but the son of his love. And how did that happen? Look at verse 14. It says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. Redemption. You know what that means, right? To be bought, purchased. A price is paid. The price is what? Death. The price is punishment for our sin. And the word redemption is, is that Jesus Christ literally paid the price so that you could be his son. That you could be adopted into his family. I mean, think of all the terms in the New Testament regarding salvation, such as sacrifice or offering, propitiation, ransom, justification, adoption, reconciliation. Yet this one, and this one alone, means to be delivered by payment or ransom. The ransom was full payment for all of your sin. All of your sin, whatever you did, whatever you thought, for all of your life. The Bible says when Jesus died on the cross, all of your sin was placed on him. Therefore, the payment was paid. The death that was deserved was given through Christ. This same Greek word translated here, redemption, is what is expressed in our English word, emancipation. It has the same idea. Paul says in Ephesians 1-7 that in him we have redemption. That is, in Christ we have redemption. But it doesn't just say that he bought us. He bought us with his blood. With his blood. His death, his sacrificial death, his propitiatory death on the cross. He gave his all so that you and I could be redeemed. We are in Christ according to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 30 through redemption. And that brings forgiveness of not some sins, 
but all sins. And that Greek word for uh, forgiveness is a word that means to send away. Your sins are literally sent away. It's what Psalm 103.12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Listen, you want to know what the babe in the manger is all about? What all of that that happened on that Christmas morning many, many years ago? It's not just about some babe being born and him living a moral and good life and he's an example to all of us or the opportunity for Hallmark to make more money because of the Christmas cards. It's all because of his desire, that is the Father's desire, to deliver us from darkness and to take us into the glorious light that comes through Christ. And what he says in this text is this. He reminds us of what the Father has done in delivering us But it comes through him, that is Christ, and we have redemption through his blood. That launches Paul into the person of Christ. The person of Christ. Now stay with me, because this is so important. At the time Paul was writing this letter at Colossae, he was dealing with an encroaching error that was already making its way into the churches. Gnosticism had already come in. Some of that Gnostic view taught that Jesus Christ was not truly deity. And they also believed that humanity was evil. Anything material was evil. And therefore, God could never become man because everything material is evil. And humanity is evil. And they disparaged the actual deity of Jesus Christ by saying that he was just another one of the creatures or even spirits created by God. That was encroaching into the church in an attempt to deny the very humanity of Christ and the deity of Christ. Which, by the way, if you do any of those, you do what? You deny salvation. You deny the very gospel itself. And so he talks about the person of Christ here. He launches into that because he's dealing with the error that was coming already into the church. In verse 14 it says, Through him, that is Christ, we have redemption through his blood. Who's the his? Who's the him? Verse, it says here in verse 15 and following, He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him, that is Christ, all things were created that are in heaven, that are on the earth, invisible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities and powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. Listen, there's simply no way around this text. It doesn't matter what the Jehovah Witness try to do and try to say that this is talking about Jesus being created as another part of the creation. In fact, what they do, instead of them affirming that Jesus is the very image of the invisible God and not part of his creation, they use the word other there. They insert it in the text that Jesus Christ is the one who created all other things. That's not what the text says. That word other is not there at all. But they insert it because they have to keep their heresy accurate, believing that Jesus is not God. But he is God. This is the one who saves us. And this is so essential. You deny the deity of Christ, you lose salvation. If you deny the humanity of Christ, you lose salvation. You can't have salvation without the god man you can't have salvation without the babe in the manger he is the image of the invisible god that word image 
a very important word in the New Testament, the Greek word icon. It can refer to a statue or a representative or a duplicate. And the idea behind that is not that he's the image like we are the image of God. We are created. Listen to this. The Bible says we are created in the image of God. He's not created in the image of God. He is the image of God, which is different. He is the representation of God to us. The Bible even says it like this in John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, talking about Christ. The word, Word, Logos, refers to Jesus. In the beginning, that whenever we could think about time beginning, was the Word. It means He already was. It's an imperfect verb there of the Greek word imi, which means to exist. In other words, Jesus Christ already was. And then it says, and the word was with God, proston theon means face to face with God, God the Son, God the Father, facing one another literally in equality. And then it says, and the word was God. And it doesn't mean he was and he's no longer. The word was is again that imperfect verb, which means he was and he is and he continues to be. What's going on in that word? But then it goes on in that same text and says in John 1 that the word Jesus created all things and nothing was created except by him. So Jesus can't be the created one and at the same time create everything else. Either he created everything or he didn't. If he was ever created, then he did not create everything. In that same text in John 1, it talks about that Jesus Christ is the exegesis of God. He's the display of God. That no one, it says in verse 18, has seen God at any time. Nobody has seen the full display of God's glory at any time. You couldn't survive it. I couldn't survive it. We couldn't be in the presence of God in all of his glory and survive it. But the Bible says that the only begotten of the Son who is full of grace and truth, he has declared him. And declared is not really the best word there because that's the Greek word we get exegesis from. It means that he has put God on full display. He has put God on full display. When you see Jesus on the planet, listen, you don't see someone representing God like an ambassador. It's literally God in human flesh. You remember what Jesus told the disciples that day whenever he was with them and they wanted to see the Father in John 14? What did Jesus tell his disciples, particularly Philip? He says, if you see me, you see who? The Father. When you get to heaven, as I've told you before, you will not see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three thrones, you will see Jesus Christ seated on the throne. You see Jesus, you see the Father. You see the Father, you see Jesus. You see the Holy Spirit, you see Jesus. Now, you ask me to explain that, I'm not even going to try. Not even going to try. I can tell you this, I know clearly that's what the Bible teaches us. And it says in this text in verse 15, Jesus Christ is the representation of, he is the statue, if you will. He's the image, the icon of God himself. The invisible God that cannot be seen. Jesus is the visible form of God. He is the one means by which we see God. This is talked about also in other portions of scripture, like in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He reflects the very attributes of God. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6, it says that Jesus is the exact likeness of God in the very form of God. 
In John 14, 9, like I told you, if you've seen him, you've seen the Father. In John 1, 14, he's the visible form of the invisible God. He's not just a God, he's the God. Then he says in this text, he's the firstborn over all creation. Oh, a lot of people have a lot of time with that. They think, well, that must mean he's the first one in chronology. But that's not what it means at all. It's not talking about he was the first one born. That's clearly not the case, is it not? There were many people born before him. But in this text, it refers to his preeminence. You know, in the Old and the New Testament, both in Greek and the Jewish communities, if you were a firstborn, you could be a firstborn chronologically. You could be the one that was first physically born like Esau was. But that doesn't mean necessarily you're the firstborn in preeminence or privilege or inheritance because out of Esau and Jacob, Esau was born first. He was the firstborn, but Jacob re- received the inheritance of the firstborn. And Christ is the preeminent one. He's the one who has the position of the firstborn. He is the preeminent one over all of his creation. He is uh, not subject to his creation. He is the governor of his creation. He's the preeminent one over his creation. Overall would be a better translation. If your translation says of creation, it would be better over all creation. It is also a, a genitive that talks about subjective genitive or subordinate genitive. It's placing all of creation, all that was made, everything that was created under him. He's preeminent over, over all of his creation. He's the creator. He's the God of the world. He's the one who made it all. And then it tells us not only that, but he, he's not only the creator, but it is through him that all things consist. Now this here is the most amazing thing because it's telling us that everything in the world is literally held together by Jesus Christ. And whenever you think the world's falling apart, guess who holds it together? Jesus does. You know, even down to the atomic level, now they're beginning to understand this more and more. They don't even fully understand how these atoms stay together, why they don't come apart. And yet the Bible tells us that it is Jesus who holds it all together. According to 2 Peter chapter 3, one day he's going to let loose and things are going to fly and they're going to burn up and be consumed. In a book entitled The Adam Speaks, uh, written by uh, D. Lee Chestnut, he uh, He talked about the puzzle of the nuclei. Listen to these words about this. He says, consider the dilemma of the nuclear physicist when he finally looks into utter amazement at the pattern he has now drawn of the oxygen nuclei. For there are eight positively charged protons closely associated together within the confines of this tiny nuclei. With them are also eight neutrons, a total of 16 particles, eight positively charged and eight with no charge. He goes on and says, earlier physicists had discovered that like charges of electricity and like magnetic poles repel each other, and unlike charges and unlike magnetic poles attract each other. And the entire history of electrical phenomena and electrical equipment had been built upon these principles known as the Coulomb Law of Electrostatic Force and the Law of Magnetism. So what was wrong? What is it he he asked this question what exactly is it then that holds the nuclei together why doesn't it fly apart 
And therefore, why do not all the atoms fly apart? Chestnut in his book described the experiments performed in the 1920s and the 1930s that proved Coulomb's law applied to the atomic nuclei. Powerful atomic smashers were used to fire protons into the nuclei of atoms. Those experiments also gave scientists an understanding of the incredible powerful force that held protons together with the nuclei. Scientists have dubbed that force, listen to this, this is profound, strong nuclear force and have no explanation for why it exists. They don't know why it's there. The physicist George Gamow, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, G-A-M-O-W, uh, one of the founders of the Big Bang Theory, which uh, of the origin of the universe, wrote these words, the fact that we live in a world in which practically every object is a potential nuclear explosive without being blown to bits is due to the extreme difficulties that attend the starting of the nuclear reaction. Carl K. Darrow, a physicist at the Bell Laboratories, agrees. He says, you grasp what this implies? It implies that all the massive nuclei have no right to be alive at all. Indeed, they should never have been created, and if created, they should have blown up instantly. Yet, here they all are. Some inflexible inner force is holding them relentlessly together. The nature of this inner force is also a secret, one thus far reserved by nature for herself, which I would say far reserved by God, not nature. God's the one who holds it all together, and it is him that all things consist. He's the creator. He's the one that sustains his creation. And then he also rules in the thrones, dominions, and authorities in verse 16. He is the one who indeed rules all the angels. That's what he's referring to. All the created beings, whether they're fallen or unfallen, thrones, dominions, and rulers and authorities, the very ranks of angels, he is the one who's in control of it all. This is the one who's born as a babe in a manger nearly 2,000 years ago that even Paul continues to say, and I'll read this and close out in verse 18 and following, that he is the head of the body. This same one that was the babe in the manger is now the head of the church, who is the beginning, the beginning of all things. He's the firstborn from the dead. That is, the, he's the preeminent one, not the first one resurrected. There were those that were resurrected in the Old Testament and even by Christ, right, before he was resurrected. But he's the preeminent one, the one who's in authority over all others. He's the one who's preeminent from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Now look at verse 19, and I'll read down through verse 22. For it pleased the Father that in him, that is Christ, all the fullness should dwell. The fullness of what? The fullness of God should dwell. And by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross, and you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. He finally circles back around and says, you want to know how you're qualified? Here's how you're qualified. You're made through his body, of his flesh, through his death, 
holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight. Isn't that beautiful? Folks, we as believers have the glorious privilege to not only know about the Savior being born, but we know the Savior. We have the redemption that has been purchased by that one born nearly 2,000 years ago. We have the forgiveness of sin that he secured for all of us, having sent all of our sin as far away as the east is from the west. I hope today is a day of praise and joy for all of us as we celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we do thank you again for our time together in your word. A privilege it has been to gather here and to think about these very familiar topics. But Lord, we are blessed. We're blessed because of your grace. We're blessed because of your mercy. We're blessed because long ago, long before you were ever born on this planet as a babe in a manger, that you had set in motion an eternal love for your elect. And Lord God, we give you praise for that. We thank you for rescuing us from darkness. We thank you for forgiving us of our sin. We thank you for making us blameless in your sight. We thank you for all that you continue to do for us. May you be praised for all that is done today in our hearts and minds, in worship and through joy. In Jesus' name, amen.